okay? It's really nice to have you in my life right now to just sort of soften the blow, okay? So love you. All right. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and preach. <laughs> so um, if you could start now, and I guess the clock has already started, that's fine. Okay, Lord, help me. All right, this is a serious question that I need you to seriously consider, and then you're going to be answering privately between you and the Lord, okay? No show of hands or anything like that. This is something I really need you to do with him, and I, I just want to warn you off before I do the question on something, which is we have this really funny thing that we do as human beings where we sort of like be defensive with God and like put up a little facade and make it try and try and make it look better than we know it is in our own hearts, right? Like, like he doesn't see our hearts <laughs> and know exactly what the facade is. It's just the silliest thing that we ever do. Honestly, he sees our hearts. That's what he sees. And so I want you to just understand that when I ask this question, it's not condemning in the least. There's nothing about it that I intend to be negative or, or God intends to be. It Rather, it's this. It's kind of, you know, the AA community has this. If you, if you don't own what's going on, how are you ever really going to fix it? If you're trying to make it look better than it is, it ain't gonna work because you're not gonna engage what it takes to work it. You see what I mean? So what you need to do, what I'm asking you to do right now, is between you and the Lord and you and the Lord only, I'm asking you to be vulnerable, transparent, real, and actually answer this question. No matter what it means, he's not mad. To the contrary, during this holiday season, I believe with all of my heart, what he's trying to do is give us a gift. He's trying to pour something out to us to make a difference in our lives. And he just needs us to get why we need the gift so that we take the gift and unwrap it in the fullness that is there. You get it? So with that, the question won't seem like that big of a deal, but it is, okay? In your heart, do you feel, do you know, do you just, you know, in that place that you kind of just compartmentalize, do you know that there is more to the Christian walk than you are living? And again, I don't need any, don't even look at me and shake your, oh, you keep looking at me, but don't shake your heads, okay? But you catch a drift. Is there more to the Christian walk? Just, just really, you, you know, do you feel that? Is that something? When you, just, when you just lay it all down and you're just naked before the Lord, uh, yeah. In fact, let me take it to the deeper place that I think the Lord wants to. The Lord gave us phenomenal examples, right? But they weren't examples that we could never attain to. They were examples for us to try and attain to. Not in works, but for us to understand what a real Christian walk looks like, he gave us lots and lots of examples. So I would take it deeper and say, looking at the lives of the disciples and others in scriptures, lovingly, not condemningly, is your life even close to theirs? Is, does your life look like theirs? You see them, you got them in scripture, we talk about them all the time. Is your life, does it look like that? <laughs> Or is it just, you know, if you're really being honest, is it just like significantly different? I'm going to raise my hand so that you understand. Mine is significantly different from the ones that I see in Scripture. And, that, and I want to be clear now that I would like to be like. 
I do want to say something in this room, even in this room where there's so many people who are committed to Christ, the reason why you're here for the most part, if you go to this church, is because you really want to get closer to the Lord. That's what we do here. We go after what it is to walk in the Lord in seriousness and depth, okay? And the point is, is so if you're here, that's what you want to do. But even then, there's going to be a significant percentage of this population that kind of is scared of. <laughs> I don't think I want my life to look like that. I kind of like it the way that it is. I'm afraid he's going to send me to Africa. <laughs> that's the way that we say it, to, to laugh, right? Well, he may. But the point is, there's nothing to be scared about with that because if he does take you somewhere, it is only because he's crazy about you and has something for you that is spectacular, that is better than anything you've ever wanted before. We really have to orient ourselves to the life that God has for us is infinitely better than the life that we're choosing, than the life that we've compromised, than the life that we're living. You see it? There is a life that he has, and we all have a sense of it. And what he's trying to do is get us to say, I want that. Would you do what it takes in me to get me there? If you go to Africa and you're like bummed, that's not what he's talking about. <laughs> he's talking about if he sends you to Africa or anywhere else in the world, that you'd be like, this is the coolest thing that's ever happened in my life. And not just in retrospect, but even before you go. These things that God is trying to do with us are wonderful. They're incredible. Not unlike having a father pass that is so merciful, it's so beautiful, it's so wonderful. And I believe that. It doesn't mean there's not <laughs> some thing there, right? So we own that so that we can get there. We can get into the beautiful place that God has for us. That's what we're going for. And that's what we're going to be doing today. Oh, Maureen Thatcher. Oh, this is wonderful. What a, uh, you know, I, I know the sermon. You don't, but th th what a perfect person to be praying for this sermon. You are incredible. So just lift up the sermon. Lift up another church, too. Father, thank you for today, and thank you that we are here uh, gathered. Lord, thanks so much for Kurt and for the message that he has for us. Lord, uh, in the midst of really hard circumstances. You are so faithful that you have comforted so that Kurt could be here Thank to serve you, you and give to us. Lord, I just, you, I'm Lord. amazed at your grace and the Thank power you, of having you inside us. It changes everything. Lord, I would pray for <clears throat> the large church in Jackson Hole. They too have lost. Amen. And Lord, I pray that you would comfort Amen. them. Lord, they may be reeling from two pillars wow. in their community being gone, having crossed the finish line. I pray that you would comfort them, and for all of us, Lord, that you would bring a real refreshing and a, a word to us, Lord, that we're challenged and encouraged to implement in our own lives. Just bless Kurt, Lord. Thanks so much that he's uh, willing to do this with us today. In Jesus' name. Thank you for that, Maureen. Thank you. I appreciate that. I was just talking to somebody about what it is to be a regional elder, and that is absolutely who he was. He was for the entire, everybody. There were literally bumper stickers on cars that said, I know Don Brunk. <laughs> that's, that's who he was to that community. Okay, wow, now I'm, now I'm choking up again. Okay, so we're in Judges, okay? And we're gonna show the video for Judges because they're just so great. And, uh, but I want you to do something. There's... 
we're going to be focusing on a particular thing that is only given a, just a short little mention. It's an important one, but a short little mention in the video. So what I want you to do, the part that we're pulling out, remember what we're doing when we go through these books. What we're doing is trying to understand how to walk our lives better now. We're not just looking at history. We're looking at what God did and what he's trying to show us and how it's supposed to work. And so the thing that we're pulling out of this incredible book today is this idea of being spirit-empowered. We're a charismatic church. We believe that God moves today. We believe that he does miracles today. We believe that he wants to do his miracles through you. That is spirit-empowered. Okay, so the point is that's what we're going to be looking at today. And again, it's only a little part of the video, but I just want to show you what a big part of the book it is, as they will also mention. Okay, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel, the very first judge. The first one, the Spirit of the Lord came upon, empowered him. Deborah was a prophetess. That's the Spirit of the Lord coming upon and saying. The Spirit of the Lord took control of Gideon. Ever heard of him? The Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. You'll hear about him in a second. And then, and then let's go to the most famous person in this book. Okay, by the way, there's every person, every judge has language that goes to this. I'm just trying to show you what it's trying to point out every time is the way that they judge. And by the way, it's not judge as in the way we think of judge, as in, you know, court or something like that. It's judge as in deliverer, the person that delivered them from oppression. So they were anointed, which is to say empowered by the spirit to deliver the people. And now Samson, as you're going to see, that's the one that everybody knows. But look at this on Samson's life. Then the Spirit of the Lord began to direct him. Then the Spirit of the Lord took control of him. The Spirit of the Lord took control of him. Do you see this? Okay. So the idea is, how are these people delivering? It's not by their might, even though Samson was strong. It's by the Holy Spirit doing through what only he can do. Now we're gonna go into this more deeply, but for now, let's go ahead and catch the video. The book of Judges. So remember after Joshua led the tribes of Israel into the promised land, he called them to be faithful to their covenant with God by obeying the commands of the Torah. And if they do this, they will show all the other nations what God is like. So Judges begins with the death of Joshua and basically tells the story of Israel's total failure. The book's name comes from the type of leaders Israel had in this period. Before they had any kings, the tribes were all governed by these judges. Now don't think of a courtroom. These were regional political military leaders, more like a tribal chieftain. And you need to be warned, the book of Judges is very disturbing and violent. It tells the tragic tale of Israel's moral corruption, of its bad leadership, and basically how they become no different than the Canaanites. But this sad story is also meant to generate hope for the future. And you can see this in how the book's designed. There's a large introduction that sets the stage for Israel's failure as they don't drive out the remaining Canaanites. Then the large main section of the book has stories about the growing corruption of Israel's judges. And the progression here shows how Israel's leaders go from pretty good to okay to bad to worse. The concluding section is really disturbing and shows the corruption of the people of Israel as a whole. So let's dive in and we can explore each part a bit more. The opening section begins with the tribes of Israel in their territories in the Promised Land. 
And while Joshua defeated some key Canaanite towns, there was still a lot of land to be taken and lots of Canaanites living in those areas. And so chapter 1 gives a long list of Canaanite groups and towns that Israel just failed to drive out from the land. Now, remember, the whole point of driving out the Canaanites was to avoid their moral corruption and their way of worshiping the gods through child sacrifice. God had called Israel to be a holy people, and that does not happen. Chapter 2 describes how Israel just moved in alongside the Canaanites and adopted all their cultural and religious practices. And it's right here that the story stops. For nearly a whole chapter, the narrator gives us an overview of everything that's about to happen in the body of the book. This part of Israel's history, the narrator says, was a series of cycles moving in a downward spiral. So Israel became like the Canaanites, and so they would sin against God. So God would allow them to be conquered and oppressed by the Canaanites, and eventually the Israelites would see the error of their ways and repent. So God would raise up a deliverer, a judge, from among Israel who would defeat the enemy and bring about an era of peace. But eventually Israel would sin again and it would all start over. This cycle provides the literary design and flow for the next main section of the book. It gets repeated for each of the six main judges whose stories are told here. Now the stories of the first three judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah, they are epic adventures. They're also extremely bloody stories. Either the judge themselves or people who help the judge, they defeat their enemies and deliver the people of Israel. The stories about the next three judges are longer, and they focus in on the character flaws of the judges, which get increasingly worse. So Gideon, he begins pretty well. He's a coward of a man, but he eventually comes to trust that God can save Israel through him. And so he defeats a huge army of Midianites with only 300 men carrying torches and clay pots. But Gideon has a nasty temper, and he murders a bunch of fellow Israelites for not helping him in his battle. And then it all goes downhill from there. He makes an idol from the gold that he won in his battles. And then after he dies, all Israel worships the idol as a god, and the cycle begins again. The next main judge is Jephthah, who's something of a mafia thug living up in the hills. And when things get really bad for Israel, the elders come to him begging for his help. And Jephthah was a very effective leader. He won lots of battles against the Ammonites, but he was so unfamiliar with the God of Israel, he treats him like a Canaanite God. He vows to sacrifice his daughter if he wins the battle. This tragic story, it shows just how far Israel has fallen. They no longer know the character of their own God, which leads to murder and to false worship. The last judge, Samson, is by far the worst. His life began full of promise, but he has no regard for the God of Israel. He was promiscuous, violent, and arrogant. He did win brutally strategic victories over the Philistines, but only at the expense of his own integrity, and his life ends in a violent rush of mass murder. Now, a quick note. Here. You'll notice a repeated theme in the main section of the book, that at key moments, God's Spirit will empower each of these judges to accomplish these great acts of deliverance. Now, the fact that God uses these really screwed up people doesn't mean he endorses all or even any of their decisions. God is committed first and foremost to saving his people, but all he has to work with is these corrupt leaders. And so work with them, he does.
This whole section is designed to show just how bad things have gotten. You can't even tell the Israelites and the Canaanites apart anymore. And that's just the leaders. The final section shows Israel as a whole hitting bottom. There are two tragic stories here, and they are not for the faint of heart. They're structured by this key line that gets repeated four times at the close of the book. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The first story is about an Israelite named Micah, who builds a private temple to an idol, and that gets plundered by a private army sent from the tribe of Dan. So they come and they steal everything, and then they go and burn down the peaceful city of Laish and murder all of its inhabitants. It's a horrifying story. When Israel forgets its God, might makes right. The final story of the book is even worse. It's a shocking tale of sexual abuse and violence, which all leads to Israel's first civil war. It's very disturbing. And that's the point. These stories are meant to serve as a warning. Israel's descent into self-destruction is the result of turning away from the God who loves them and saved them out of slavery in Egypt. And now Israel needs to be delivered again from themselves. The only glimmer of hope in this story is found in this repeated line in the last part of the book. It actually forms the last sentence of the story. Israel has no king. And so the stage is set for the following books to tell the origins of King David's family, the book of Ruth, and also the origins of kingship itself in Israel, the book of 1 Samuel. But the story of Judges has value as a tragedy. It's a sobering explanation of the human condition, and ultimately it points out the need for God's grace to send a king who will rescue his people. And that's the book of Judges. Okay, I need to, for what we're doing today, I need us to think about the Holy Spirit and realize that there's two primary things that he does in the world. The first one is empowerment in, in us and in the world. Empowerment, and the second one is sanctification. Okay, empowerment and sanctification. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to look first at empowerment because I want us to get this. Now, I meant to ask you guys beforehand, but I forgot. John and Josh, could you guys come up here for a sec? Okay. All right. Now, what's that? No. No, come right here. Okay, and Josh, you're going to stand back here for a sec, because I'm not going to use you for just a second. Now, here, here's what I want you to understand. When we talk about empowerment, okay, we're talking about something that only God can do. Now, just watch what I'm saying, okay? Now, if John, in his heart, for whatever his reasons are, wants to walk across the stage, then he can walk across the stage. Go ahead and do it. No problem, right? I mean, easy enough, go ahead and walk back because you want to come back. You probably don't want to come back, but anyway, <laughs> come back, okay? All right. So, so, so you see, if, he, if we want to do something in our own self, we just can do it. But now let's say that God tells John, walk across the stage. He's now got two problems. The first one is, it's not just getting across the stage, it's not just walking across the stage, it's not going to Africa and, and being bummed about it the whole time that you're there. It's embracing what it is that God is asking you to do in a willing, cheerful, responsive, obedient, loving way, so that the way that you go across there 
the heart with which you'll go across there and every other aspect of it is worked out the way God wants. Because here's the key to when God tells you anything. I'm going to say in my life, probably yours too, I'm going to say 60% of the time that God tells me to do something, I have a pretty good sense of what it is he's telling me to do. The other 40%, that may be a little higher for me than for you, but the other 40% of the time, I don't know. I really don't know. Or maybe I know some of it, but not all of it, or maybe I, maybe I, but I just want to tell you something. There is easily 30% of the time when God is telling me to do something, I don't know why. I don't have any idea why. And the only thing that I'm supposed to do, he gives me intelligence, he gives me, um, you know, a heart, he gives me all the things that he gives me, but all of that is to be marshaled into trying to obey, not trying to figure it out. You can ask God anything you want to ask him. He loves you to ask him. And if he wants to tell you, he's going to tell you. And he would like you to know a lot of times. But, but sometimes, have you ever been in a situation where God tells you to do something and you ask him why and he tells you why and knowing that why messes you up in doing it the way that he would have had you do it? Do you see it? Because now you think you understand it. But you don't. The thing that God has been teaching this church for the last two months is obey. I told you two months ago, at the beginning of September, I said, I don't really want to use the word obey, God. It's not a good word in our culture. And he was saying, that's the point. <laughs> People don't think of it as a good thing. You know what I mean? So they, so they have their own, I'll, I'll do it if, and I'll negotiate, and I'll, you know, see what I mean? But what he's doing is he's just saying, no, all I asked you to do was to do this, and I just need you to understand that I have something good, I have something better, I have something that I want to do, and all we're to do is to figure out how to do it right, okay? So right there, the first problem that John's got is, is that he's got to do this in the right way. Now that is tough enough. Super tough. But then you add the second part in. And that is, when God tells you to do something, there's this bigger, badder, <laughs> more muscular <laughs> resistance to the thing that you've been told to do. Satan. And you're not Satan. But you get the point, okay? Thank you for standing in for just a sec. Okay? But do you get the point? Satan is resisting what you're supposed to do. You remember all the time when Jesus would do something and people that were demonically depressed, what would they always do? We know who you are. What are you going to tell us to do? Now, I noticed that Jesus had no problem overcoming them, ever. It was never like a sweat. The only thing he ever sweated about to overcome was himself. I don't want to do this, Lord, in the garden. That was the first point that we were making. But you just do it because God has a better way. But this second point, see, they know exactly what's going on. And when God has told you to do something, it's not like the enemy doesn't see it. You may not even see it, but the enemy does. And so he's going to resist you. So now, do your best. Now, John, try and walk across the stage like God has told you to do. <laughs> you can try harder. Try harder. <laughs> That's it. Thank you. <laughs> That's why I wanted to use you too. You know, hey, John, the torch has passed. <laughs> you get the point, right? You get the point. We're being withstood, which is why God has to empower you. And when he empowers you, don't ever worry about being withstood, ever. Don't pay it any mind. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Okay, 
I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I could go on and on. But you see it? You don't have to worry about it. You just have to know that it's there. You have to know that when he's called you, you're going to have your own self to deal with, getting it right. And you're going to have the resistance that's coming at you to get it right. You see it? Now, when I, the reason why I'm saying all this is because I want you to understand something. Theologically, this is so important. If you've been here, there's just a few people left that have been here for 20 years. But if you've been here for 20 years, okay, you know that for 20 years I've been saying the same thing, which is the empowerment is for other people. It's not for you. The mistake we make in charismatic churches, churches that believe in the move of the Holy Spirit, is that we siphon off at least some of the Holy Spirit's movement so that we have a spirit party or so that we get something out of it. What God means to do, what he is, do, he is doing something in us, the Holy Spirit is, it's called sanctification. That's what he's doing in you. But in empowerment, remember the guys that are up there? Remember what it said in the video? It was despite how terrible people they were. The whole point was is that God moved through them and it wasn't for them. See? It was him moving through to do what he wanted to get done. So the key is, and this is so important because we're about to undermine it a little bit, but not really. But I need you to catch this. The key to moving in his empowerment is it's not for you. In fact, scripturally, Here's what God says about the things that we do for him as we do them from ourselves. The first one comes from the Old Testament even. We are all inflicted and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Here's what it means. I'm supposed to go do this and I end up thinking how it could be good for me. And so I start to pollute the thing that God has asked me to do by adding myself to the thing. Do you see it? I'm polluting the garment. I'm polluting the situation by adding me and my desires and my wants to it. This is again why Jesus in the garden is crying, is, is praying so hard that his sweat becomes like a drop of blood because he's trying to get rid of every bit of that so that what he does is what God wants and only what God wants. Nothing for himself, nothing about himself. See it? So now... The second thing is, and again, now, see, in the New Testament, we would say it this way. He must increase, I must decrease. To be clear, this is about John the Baptist saying to people that are coming to him, are we supposed to worship you or follow this new guy? And he's saying, no, no, no. I need to decrease, he needs to increase. So this is about Jesus being greater than John in its obvious meaning, but it is also metaphoric, and I could use lots of scriptures, but we've done it so much, I'm not going to today. But lots of scriptures that basically say this. Here's the deal. As Christians, we need to use every bit of intellect we've got, every bit of spirituality we've got, every bit of experience we've got in order to learn how to empty ourselves. And that is not empty ourselves as in we're not supposed to be thinkers. You know, this, this sort of critique of charismania that is that they're not, that they don't use their intellect and so on. We're supposed to use it. Massively, we're supposed to use it. What we're supposed to use it in is becoming better obeyers becoming better followers. We use everything we've got, everything that he's trained us up to do, every experience we've got is to teach us how to be better at that. So we use it, we just don't use it for ourselves. We use it in order, here's the way I always think about it. The more empty you are, the more he can fill. The more he can fill, the more he's gonna do what he wants to do the way he wants to do it. 
Got it? So this is simple, right? This is, we all good on this? Everybody nod your head and say, yeah, we got it. Okay. All right. So now I want to go on a little bit. See? Now watch this. This is a book that is written about this very principle in the New Testament. There's this, in some ways you could say it's almost like a weird book. Because even though there's these pastoral epistles that Paul writes, or God more accurately writes through Paul, but even though there's these pastoral epistles, they're letters to churches that are correcting problems and so on, this one of all of the books stands out for a particular reason, and that is because it's a church that's fully charismatic. It's a church that's moving in all the gifts. In fact, right here, this is chapter one, verse five through seven. By him you were enriched in everything. What does he mean? So that you do not lack any spiritual gift. What's he talking about? You're empowered. You're moving in all the spiritual gifts. You're moving in all the things of the spirit. You are moving in all the things of the spirit. Now that's verse seven. Starting in about verse eight, he will spend the entire rest of the book now correcting how they're moving in it. So do you think there's a problem? Do you think there's a thing that we need to learn? Because this will all climax in chapter 14 when he says this about everything he's been talking about throughout the book, about how to do things without polluting them, without making them filthy, without getting yourself involved. What he's saying is, if therefore outsiders or unbelievers enter and you are acting in a way where you're siphoning the things of the Spirit onto yourself, so that you are becoming prideful, or so that you are becoming, having a grand old Holy Spirit party. So if you're siphoning off to yourself, then when people come in, outsiders or believers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds, and the implication is, and run away, and they'll be right to do it. Now here's what's so horrible about that. You guys have, most of you have heard this before, but I just need to, I need to lay the groundwork for where we're going here today. Here's what's horrible about that. The reason why God gave you the empowerment of the Spirit was so that you could reach that person. That's why he gave it to you. In fact, that's the next thing he'll say, right? Look, here's what I gave it to you for. If all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he's convicted by all if it really is from the Lord. Why? Because he's called to account. You just read his mail. How do you know that? I don't, God does, and he loves you, and he wants to say this to you, and in which case the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. You see it? He gave us the gifts to save people. That's the key. By the way, next week, we're gonna go into this in a whole other way that is really cool. But the point is, is you, you get the point, see? When we're siphoning for ourselves what God intended for someone else, it perverts it, it filthies it, it, it messes it up. And it causes us, it can get so bad that just like the judges, we can end up doing with that power exactly the opposite thing that God intended. We can end up chasing people away, even though it really is the Spirit. <laughs> you see it? So are we there? Do we, do we get how important this is? So here's the deal. The key to the life that God has for us. If we want to get to this life, we opened up with that question, right? Do you know that there's more? And what we're talking about is how do you enter into the more? And here's what I want to say. Now watch. I just talked for, I don't know, 15 minutes or 10 minutes about how it can go bad. And so here's what most people say, particularly in America. Here's what most people say. 
then I just won't go there. <laughs> you know, if, if, that, if that's so fraught with peril, why should I go there? I'll just stay here where it's safe. Let me rephrase it. I'll stay here where I know there's so much more that God wants to do and has for my life. I will steal from myself. I will cut off all of the incredible blessings and joys and love and processes that God has for me because I'm afraid I might get it wrong. Here's the thing about God. He knows you're going to get it wrong. (laughs) Did you see this meme that's going around Facebook right now? Uh, When God called you, he factored in your stupidity. (laughs) Right? He knew from the beginning that you were dumb. (laughs) And that you were going to fail. He knows this. So making a mistake in the Lord, my gosh, isn't that what Christianity is all about? It's owning the fact that we do make mistakes. It's not trying to even become perfect. What it is trying to become is enter into more of what he has. Now notice the phrasing here. It's not that you get more holy. That will happen too. But that's the byproduct. That's not the point. The point is, is that he has wonderful things that he wants you to enter into. So... The key to entering into things, even if there's a problem, is try. (laughs) Right? Just try. It may not work out. You may screw up. Oh, well. (laughs) Now, don't go in casually, you know, not thinking screwing up makes any difference. It does make a difference. So do your best. But try. Always understand something. Remember what we said two seconds ago about being resisted? Satan is resisting you entering into the things that God has for you, the empowered things. He's resisting that. So anytime you give into it and step away from it, he wins. (laughs) Not good. What he's trying to do, what God is trying to do is he's trying to say, trust me, step out, and then... You're going to make mistakes. You're going to have successes. Learn from both your successes and your failures. And then do what? Can anybody guess what comes next? And then try again. (laughs) Right? This is what our walk is. It's just trusting him that he's got us when we fall, that he died for our sins, that he died for our failures, that he's got us, that he holds us. It's beautiful. It's incredible. It's freeing. It should be empowering. Not just in the sense we've been using it with the Spirit. It should be empowering in yourself to want to do it because he's going to have you. And the cooler thing is he's going to take you someplace. And when he takes you someplace, when you ask that next question about how far away am I, you're still going to be infinitely far, but you're going to be less far than you were yesterday. You're going to be closer. And I'm telling you, even getting one step closer to God changes everything, even if it's a million miles. (laughs) Right? Every foot is huge. So here's the deal. God says there's a narrow gate. Broad is the way to destruction. Wide is the gate. But there's a narrow road, a high road. And what Satan does is, you've heard this before, Satan tries to keep us in the ditch where we're not moving in his anointing and his spirit of power. You see that? Here's what the scripture says it. People have a form of godliness having denied its power. They're going to church giving them money, serving on a committee, teaching Sunday school, all of which are just wonderful and everything else, but there's a way of doing that that is sort of, I'm checking the boxes, but I'm not really diving in. And what he's saying is, you gotta dive in. 
You're not going to get what I want to give you unless you try, unless you go for it, unless you move out in it. I come here as a charismatic pastor 20-some years ago. It's the thing I care about more than anything else. I think, you know, Francis Chan wrote a book, The Forgotten Part of God, and it was about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the thing that changed my life. Jesus, too. Don't ever misunderstand. I love Jesus. But the thing I feel like God made me a pastor for was is because I learned the difference between just having Jesus and having Jesus or having the Holy Spirit move through me in power. And that changed my life as dramatically as Jesus did saving me. Literally had gotten saved and lived for seven years in a very difficult place where it got more and more like judges. I was just spiraling down. And it didn't even look like that to anybody else. It looked real good. But I knew I was spiraling down. And then all of a sudden, one day, God baptized me in the Holy Spirit. And when he did, <laughs> boom. <laughs> everything that I've ever done and everything that I've ever been and everything that's been of any value in my life whatsoever came out of that moment. Okay? So this is important, what we're talking about. Embrace this. I am always careful to say, don't become hyper-charismatic. But I also say something else, too. Very few people go from the ditch of having a form of godliness without its power and then right to the upper road and just get it perfect. <laughs> I say very few people, what I really mean is I've never seen anybody do it. So usually what happens is you're in one ditch and then you pop over and you go to the other ditch and then you pop over. But each time you're going in the ditch less and less. And what happens is over time, more and more, high, narrow, God road. Okay? which is if he can't keep you in the ditch, then he tries to pop you over the high road where Jesus is to the other ditch of hyper-spirituality like the Corinthians. Right there in the, in the Bible, in the first church, this issue we're talking about. So there we go. Now, we've talked about empowerment now. And what I've told you is it's not for you. It's for other people. Got it? Everybody get it? Because now I'm going to tell you that there is actually something for you in it. <laughs> Okay, and there really is, and it's super important. And it's one of the lessons that we learned from judges. Now we're gonna to go to sanctification. Remember, that's for you, right? Well, there's a connection between empowerment and sanctification that I'm gonna bring out for you that's in judges that is really, I hope, going to cause you to go, oh, I get it. It's not using it for yourself to have a party, but it's when you do the things that God wants you to do, he just does things. Watch this. Sanctification is making something holy. That means God, like God, right? Not filthy, not, not self, and not all that other stuff, just God. And Christians are sanctified now and not yet. What does that mean? Super simple. Super simple, and keep it simple. The now of sanctification is that when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, he makes you new. He gives you a new nature, and in that new nature, that new nature is God. It's God's nature that he puts in you. And God can't sin, so you can't sin. This is 1 John, we've looked at it many times. You cannot sin. Right now, every person in here that's accepted Jesus and become a new Christian is perfectly holy before the Lord. That's not how we look at it, because we look at a bigger picture we're going to get to. But you need to understand the now of sanctification means this. You are, because of the new being that God has made in you, you are perfectly holy and exactly right with him. Every single person. You need to know this about you. 
You need to know that. Otherwise, you'll end up in all kinds of ditches of condemnation and inferiority and all that kind of stuff. No, the fact is you're a child of God, made by God. You have his nature inside of you. The Holy Spirit is in there, and he is working with you, and it is phenomenal. Okay, and that's the truth. We have to know that. We have to own it. We have to live in it. But we also need to live in the not yet. What's the not yet mean? Well, this new nature is in this vessel. <laughs> Fleshly, habit, not so great. It's, it's fighting with us. Fighting with us. We keep going back to that Romans 7, and I'm not going to do it today. But, you know, why do I do the things I don't want to do and don't do the things I do? Oh, I discovered something. There's a new me. And it doesn't want to do it. But the old one still does want to do it. There's the Christian walk. There's the Christian fight. Getting your mind on the things of the spirit and not the things of the flesh. Right there. Okay? So the point is the not yet is, is that this vessel in this, or this new spirit in this vessel, there still is a working out of your salvation. In fear and trembling, says Paul, for all of us New Testament people. Okay? There is a fear and trembling to be had. And that's to work it out. And, and understand something. It's not because you're such a sinner, it's not about the sin, it's about what it's stealing from your life. And God hates it when we steal from ourselves or when we give in to the resistor in such a way as that we end up not entering into the fullness that he has, the walk that he has. That's what we're going for, the life that he has for us. Okay, so we got all that. So now we're at the not yet. So here's what Judges shows us. This is the flesh, the new nature, Right? Just as they said, you know, there's this, you, you get into a place of peace, and by the way, I'm going to put this up right now, there is nothing harder to survive than prosperity, okay? And what we do is, is that we get to looking at something in the world that we want, and that our flesh wants, and what the heck, you know, God understands, or something else, or whatever, or, you know, just, I just want this, so I'm just going to get it. And so there's sin, and when we give ourselves over and we separate ourselves, that sin starts to do what? Takes bondage over us. It gets us into oppression. It starts getting us. See? So now you're in oppression. And then at some point in time, you wake up and you go, I remember I was in freedom at one point in time, and now I'm in this bondage, and what the heck? And you begin to weep. You begin to cry out for God to move. And guess what God does when people cry out for him? He answers. <laughs> you know what I mean? And he answers in a spirit-empowered way. See? What he does is he comes over here. Now, wait a minute. What happened there? Did, did the, oh no, I'm sorry. Okay, there you go. See, repentance, he answers the spirit and so there's the deliverance. But then I want you to see, see, and now that we're delivered, we get comfy again. I keep saying it. Nothing is hard to survive from prosperity. Why do I know that? Because I was a Christian, saved. And I, I, I walked away from everything and I walked into God. And seven years later, there was all kinds of world that was attached to me again. <laughs> and I was prosperous. I just, it's important that I share certain things because I think it'll help. And, and if you know my story, you know that the first 30 years of my life, I was wealthy. And I could do anything that I wanted to do. And I did. And then, right about 30, a little before that, I became poor. And when I say poor, I became not as every person in this room, but I came probably very close to as poor as any person in this room has ever been. 
Okay, I mean, poor as in couldn't buy clothes, couldn't buy, couldn't buy food, et cetera, et cetera. I became very poor. And I have remained in a state of financial need for the last 30 years of my life. I'm 60-some now, and for 30 years I was wealthy, and now for 30 years I have been in financial need. Now I want to be careful about something. See, I live in a very nice condo downtown. So you got to be, right? You could say, well, you don't have to live in that condo. You're right. I do want to say something. It is 700 square feet. I don't know how many people live in that. I'm sure some do. But I live in 700 square feet, so I, I made a trade. And the trade that I made was is I wanted to have a view and I wanted it to be kind of nice. And so I spend more money and, and I end up, but, I, but here's what I'm trying to communicate without sort of getting too deeply into my own whatever. What I'm trying to say is, is I have lived the last 30 years of my life with financial need. And I want to tell you something. The financial need has kept my eyes on God. When I was prosperous, my eyes were on God and all this other fruit. And I struggled more with falling when I was rich than when I was poor. Do you see it? We all get this, right? So this is a thing, okay? With that thing, we get into peace, we go after something else, we end up in oppression, and, and we spiral down. Now, what's God trying to do? Reverse the spiral. He's trying to get us to spiral up. <laughs> and so here's what we do. The first thing we do is, it's not that the sin isn't there, but you see how I erased it? The sin's still there, but what he wants you to do, the stuff in the world is still there. We still live in the world, right? You're of another kingdom, but you're in this world. And the point is, is you're still looking, but what he wants you to do is he wants you to look through the things of the world to what? This is so important right now. What's he want you to be looking at? Instead of the stuff in the world that you want, that would be good for you and your pleasure and your flesh, what's he want you looking at? Yes, but I'm going to go even further. It's, it's people that are in need. People that are being oppressed. Isn't that what we're to do? We have a ministry of reconciliation. What are we supposed to do as Christians? We're supposed to, great, great commission, we'll look at it again more next week, but great commission, we're supposed to make disciples of all nations. But what's he really saying? What's the real way to say that for this sermon today? Here's what he wants us to do. There's somebody that is hurting and in need and he wants you to go help them. <laughs> Right? Care about them. Instead of looking at what you want, look at what somebody else needs, what they're hurting in. See it. He sees it. He wants you to see it. You see it? And when we start looking at other people's needs to the point that we actually get to where we are crying out for them, yeah, well, really? see? Now, I want, I want to do something right now. You may be thinking I'm talking in generalizations. I'm not. If you really want to get this sermon down right, I think in the end, yeah, it's anybody. But I think in the beginning, here's where God starts with you. Do you have a relative, a member of your family, who's in tremendous need right now, needs God? You know they need God. Are you crying for them? Are you crying out to God for them? 
That's not so hard to do, is it? <laughs> That's not something, not something on the street corner and oh my gosh, you know. This is not, but do you have a friend who you know needs the Lord? Well, are you letting it affect you? See it? Because when you do, when you cry out, what does God do to people that are crying out? Even if what you're doing is crying out for somebody else. And by the way, anytime we're crying out for somebody else, almost always there's a connect to us somewhere, right? Because we comfort in what we've been comforted in. So the fact is, is you doing that is crying out for you too. There, but for the grace of God, go I. It's not you lording it over, I know better for you. It's you saying, I struggle with this, you struggle with that, I'm trying to help you. So once we do that, then we get to deliverance. God's showing up in his Holy Spirit, empowering in order to deliver them, right? Now that you you may say, but just stick with me for a second. And then that brings us back to peace, which could bring us into prosperity, which as I said, is hard to overcome. It's harder for a rich man to get in the kingdom of heaven than a camel through the eye of a needle, okay? It doesn't, by the way, always remember something. God does not care how much money you have. He just cares how much the money's got you. (laughs) That's it. He doesn't care what you own. He doesn't care a lick about what you own. He just cares about whether or not it owns you. And the way to have it not own you is to look past that to the need, to somebody in need. Do you see it? You, we all get this, right? This is pretty simple. No, no, no. This, we're going to go through this again, but I want, us, I want us to just see something right here. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Do you see that in a whole new way right now? To set your mind on the flesh, that stuff of the world is death. It'll put you in the downward spiral. But to put your mind on the things of God, on the spirit, on what the spirit's doing, it'll go like this. It'll take you up. Okay, now. The big question, is there a key that unlocks this life he has for us? That's the question I started with, and that's what we're now going to answer. Is there a key that will make your life enter into more fully what he has for you? Is there? You should already kind of know the answer, but let's do it so that we really get it. We see the need that someone else has. We also see the inability, even failure of our efforts. Anybody in here ever tried to reach out to that friend, that neighbor, that, that person in the family, and they rejected you? They did not receive what you had? Anybody? <laughs> A, I hope you've reached out. <laughs> and B, if you have, you have had them reject. So you know you can't do it. So what do you need? You need the Holy Spirit to do what only he knows to do. So what you do is, he wants us to truly love them, hurt for them, splanknitzomai. Remember what splanknitzomai is? This is that thing where filled with compassion, he would see somebody in need and filled with compassion, it was gut-wrenching to him. Empathy, he would feel it and he would feel what their pain was and it would extend him out to them to help them. Splanknitzomai. He wants us to not just go, oh my gosh, isn't that sad? He wants us to hurt with. That's why he gave us mirror neurons. It's called empathy. He wants us to empathize, which is a relate to identify with. 
own it too. This is the love that God has. When God looks at the world, what's he looking at? What does he see when God looks at the world? We think he sees the sin that we did. No, that's already been covered by the blood. He doesn't see that at all. You know what he does see? People who need to be covered with the blood. They're hurting. That's what he sees. And what he says is, is there anybody that's going to go to them? He looks all over the world, he says, to find somebody who's going to stand in the gap. To find somebody who's going to be a watchman and call out. This is what God cries about. People that he made have such a beautiful life and they're experiencing such a terrible one, even if they think in themselves it's great. Because in their old nature, they're thinking, oh no, this is what I really want. And in fact, it's just getting them in more and more, more and more bondage. This is, drugs are the perfect analogy for this. Because a drug, when you take it, makes you high and happy. But it leads to bondage. This is what God cries about. So we cry out to him too, as the Spirit leads. Now right here, this is, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. I have this person, I have a person in my mind right now, you want to start thinking about somebody, but I have a person in my mind right now that I literally, you know, Paul said, I pray for you continually, and I always go, how did you do that? Well, I can tell you that there's something going on with this particular person, and they don't leave my gut. Not even for a second. There's a thing that's in me about this person that I'm just crying out for. There's lots of people that I could be, but they're not the ones that the Lord has anointed me for. They're not the ones that the Lord has quickened me to. Do you see it? They're the ones that God has quickened me, the one that God has quickened me to. It's not leaving my gut, it's my I'm just, this is just turning. Right now I can feel it turning. And as I feel it turning, I think about that person and I pray for them and I'm crying for them and I'm weeping for them and I'm praying to God for them. You see it? That's what he says. <laughs> the Holy Spirit knows what God's heart is for them and we don't, but he gives us that same thing so that we pray in accordance with it. God does what he does for the most part through us. He just needs us to do that. What he's saying is, is I'm going to do it because I'm going to put it on your heart and you're going to give me my e-ticket into their life. Look, he sees and hears and answers my cries by empowering. It might not be me. It might be somebody else. We'll get to that. When God empowers through us, and here's the key for the sermon now. Now we're talking about how do you enter into the life that God has for you? How do you enter into it? How do you get to a place to where you're increasingly sanctified and increasingly walking in the things that God wants you to walk in and enjoying the fullness and the amazingness of what God has? When God empowers through us, we are in so incredibly thankful, grateful, amazed, it causes us to fall in love with him much more deeply, doesn't it? Has anybody ever prayed for somebody that was in need and then God used you in some way and then all of a sudden their life really did change because God got involved in it? Because that's the best high there is, by far. 
That's the one that he made us to be able to experience that drugs try and counterfeit. When you experience that, it's the most incredible thing. It's, oh my gosh, I can't believe you did that. And it was the fact that you were crying out for them, knowing that you couldn't do it, that makes you realize you don't get the credit for it. He does. He did it. Only he could do it. And then he did it, and wow! <laughs> now you're in love with him. And when you're in love for us, it causes us to be much more intimate with him, doesn't it? If you're, just, if you're just living this life with no power, and then you're wondering why you don't love God, like other people do, or whatever, and you're thinking, well, man, I'm just not that loving or something. I'm, I'm going to tell you, no, that's not it. What it is, is, is start letting the Lord use you. Start letting him quicken to you somebody. Carry them in you until you start to cry for them until you start to weep for them, until you start to press into him for them. And then when he moves, whether it be through you or not, you'll be going, oh my gosh, that was incredible. And you'll be stepping out more and more because it's so good. It's so much better than anything else that life has to offer. Being more intimate with him causes, now watch, see, it keeps going. We're spiraling up now. Because it's be more and more in it with him, it causes us to see others who need the incredible thing that we've discovered, right? When you really fall in love with God, when you really start seeing the world the way that he sees it, when you really start being intimate with him, you start saying, oh my gosh, look at that. You see it. And now all of a sudden, instead of looking for the thing that you would do for your flesh that has to do with, you see, what you're looking for is this thing. How can I minister? What do you want to do? Use me again. So we cry out again, which he sees, hears, and answers with his anointing and spirit empowerment. See how this is going around and around again? And so we spiral up ever more beautifully. Here's, here's how it works. The key that opens the door to the life that he has for us, simply, truly care to the point of crying out for those we already love. I'm not asking you to go onto a street corner and try and figure all this out. I'm asking you to go to your family. Guess who you will be with, by the way, in two weeks called Thanksgiving. And then again, in some fashion, over the holidays, Christmas hopefully. People that you already love, that you already care about. He's not asking. Now, ultimately, yeah, he'll stretch you. He'll grow you to be more and more and more global on it, right? But start with where it's easy. Start with this person that you already love and you've kind of, you know, just decided to give up a little bit. Just, you know, you still care about them, but you're not going to do anything. But what I'm telling you to do is don't not just do anything. Press into God, the Holy Spirit, who knows what they need and start praying. Asking them, I don't know how to pray for that person. Pray through me for them. Pray in, the, pray in tongues. Pray in the Spirit. Pray for them according to the way the Spirit leads. And then he'll start putting more and more and more in you about how to meet their need. And, now watch. And then, if and when he anoints and empowers us, just let God move through you. <laughs> you don't have to do, at that point in time, here's what I want to say. We talk about the Lord doing some miracle through you, and people that have never really had that happen are fearful of that. What does that look like? Here's what I want to tell you. When you're really in love with somebody, and you have been crying out for them, and then God moves through you to meet them, you don't even know what's happening. 
And to the degree that you do know that it's happening, you don't care because it's the most wonderful thing you've ever done. You're so excited about it. He's not dragging us kicking and screaming into things that we're going to hate. He's already opened the door to something that we can do and that he's just trying to get us to walk through it more and more and more. In fact, don't just pray that somebody be empowered for them. Earnestly desire it yourself. Like, like um, Isaiah did. Ask him, Lord, here I am, send me. Right? I'm praying for them. If you're going to do something, send me. Make sure you've covered it in prayer and make sure that you've got your heart right and make sure that you're praying according to the Spirit so that it's lining up right and then let the Lord do something through you. And now instead of meeting that, you're still going to meet the resistance, but the Holy Spirit knows how to beat that resistance because it ain't a problem. And this is the life that God has for us. I was a guy who lived in Vail, Colorado, drank Crystal champagne for 12 bucks a bottle, a ski bum at heart and wanted to do nothing more than just ski powder for the rest of my life. I'll stop it there even though there's more. But then God saved me. And when he saved me, I went, oh, there's more to life than skiing powder and drinking champagne and being with this beautiful girl. Oh. But the world still came back on me. And then I got baptized in the Holy Spirit. And when I got baptized in the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden, it's, I've never looked back. <laughs> There's somebody in the room who's knew me from before, <laughs> Janice. And you know what a, I mean, I am the miracle story of the family. Everybody is. But mine had greater breadth, shall we say. And what I'm here to tell you is, is I had everything that anybody could ever want in spades. And the things that God took me into make it seem so stupid, <laughs> so superficial. I'm not saying I still, I can still enjoy things of the world. I, they just don't own me. Here's what does own me. You, my family, my friends, neighbors. Literally, I'll, I'll leave here today and I'll go be with a neighbor. Because that's what owns me. And it's the greatest life. And I'm still a million miles from it. <laughs> but what I want to tell you is, is this is worth it. This is it. And I know it's it because I've tasted enough of it to tell you for real it's it. And so what I'd ask you to do is to join me. Reach in front of you and there's a piece of paper and a pen. Prayerfully. I want you to think about somebody that you already love. I'm not asking you to reach outside. I'm asking you to think of one. 
Some of you are just bad rules followers. You're going to write down two or three. I think that when you do two or three, you're going to lose. Oh, oh ushers, if, you, if there's anybody that needs a piece of paper or a pen or anything else, raise your hand and the ushers can get it to you. But, but what I want to say is, is that, where was I? What's that? Oh, choose one. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Choose one. Okay? You can get to the other ones later. Okay? But there's a Thanksgiving coming up and a Christmas coming up. And there's somebody that you love that needs God. And what I'm asking you to do is, I'm asking you to write their name down prayerfully. Write their name down. Now, some of you, when I talk about baptism of the Holy Spirit, don't know what I'm talking about. And you must call me or email me or do something. But here's what I want to tell you. Just enter into it. The Spirit's there. The Spirit's going to do. So just go after it and say, I can't. You can. So you do this. Show me how to do this. I'm going to pray as according to how you lead me. And I want you to just enter into it because you've entered into it. See what I'm saying? But still call me because there's some theological points that are, that are relevant and worth it. Okay? But you get it? So write this name down. I'm going to do the same thing right now. I'm going to write down the person I've been talking to you about. Don't have to let anybody see it. Take it, put it in your pocket, make sure you put it somewhere where you're going to remember this. And let the Lord start moving on you. Let him start moving through you. Let him start praying through you. Let him start going after this person. Let him start doing the thing that he can do as he builds up something as he does this. And then be asking him. Don't, you know, as you're praying, hear him, I send me. Right? Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, thank you for this moment. Thank you. In Jesus' holy and precious name, selfishly we pray that we want the life that you have for us, but it's not a bad selfish. This is a good selfish. We want what you have for us. But now, Lord, we take ourselves, we take our attention off of ourselves and we put it on that person. And right now, just, just, we just start to pray for them. God, just bring... Just, you don't have to say their name out loud. You don't want it to be embarrassing, but just be praying for them right now. Just take a minute and start praying for them. Let the Holy Spirit show you how to pray for them and pray as according to the way that you're being led. let that get into our guts that we're reminded of it continually teach us how to move in your Holy Spirit ever more deeply to be empowered God bring them to you bring these people that you've placed on our hearts to you 
We ask you, we beg you, and we are instruments for helping you do this along with others. But in Jesus' holy and precious name, God, use me. Here am I. Send me. Say that to him. Here am I. Send me. Reach down in front of you. Two cups. Take the second one, the, the lower one with the bread. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, you've shown us today how to live a beautiful life in you. An ever deeper, ever richer, ever more incredible life with you. And we know that, and so we, we, we know that we have fallen short of that. So we take our finger and we put it in there and we break it. But God, we're not really focusing on that so much as we're lifting it up to you and saying, you have such a beautiful thing. You have healing. You have glory. You have you. And so in Jesus' most magnificent name, Lord, we take this saying, heal me. Bring me home. Bring me into full sanctification by moving through me to reach others. But in Jesus' holy and precious name, God, reach others. Take this cup together, would you? And now, Lord, we lift up this cup in which is the blood, which is the life that you have for us. And oh, how magnificent it is. And so in Jesus' most spectacular name, dear God, please take every person here and move them a significant step closer to what the fullness of that is. If you agree with that, say amen, Lord, and take this cup together. Thank you, ushers, for coming forth. Lord, in Jesus' most beautiful name, thank you for speaking to us today. Thank you for touching us today. Thank you for showing us the more beautiful life. And in response, we just pour out to you right now.